here we are. This is Sex Love Psychedelics, and I'm your host, Dr. Kat. Bringing you psychosexual conversations that will leave you intellectually turned on and hungry for more. Hey, lovers. It's been a month since the SCOTUS ruling on abortion rights, and since then, there's been a lot of conversation, a lot of legal changes, a lot of movement in the advocacy world, and a hell of a lot of confusion. What does all of this mean? What does it mean legally about our rights and our potential for criminalization? What does this mean about marginalized folks, and what does this mean about really us as a culture. (laughs) And to help us make sense of all of this, I have with me today, Amy Merrill, the founder of Plan C, an organization here to help you with the information and the support necessary for you to take back the agency of your own body. And this is an incredible conversation that we get into, one that not only touches on what's happening in the political system around abortion, but also what's brought us to this point. (laughs) Amy shares about the factors that contribute to the imbalance of power as it relates to our bodies and the reproduction, and even gives us a new lens to reframe the narrative around abortion that I love. So you'll also want to stay until the very end because we get into questions about the various options around abortion, including plan C and the process of self-managed abortion. So whether you're in this position or not, it's an episode that reaches beyond the surface argument and invites you into uh, identify and be with and really question the underlying structures of our culture that we live in today. So we need more critical thinking in our society, just point blank. (laughs) So I hope that this is an inspiring one for you. But before we get to Amy, One way that I really believe that we can contribute to the rebalance of power in our society is by developing healthy and loving relationships with our own bodies. So we start here with ourselves. And that's why my Central Awakening 14-Day Initiation course was made to bring you back into the pleasure of being with your body. This course is made up of accessible and science-based practices that are designed to help you to understand both the intelligence of your body how to learn to self-regulate and soothe your nervous system and develop a ritual around the love and the affection and the um, appreciation of your body. Because I see this as transforming the way that we both make decisions around our body, as well as how we let others make decisions around our body. That's how we change the policy. We don't wait for somebody else to make the change for us. We start with ourselves. So be sure to check that out. Link is in the bio. Now to the incredible powerhouse of a woman, the founder of Plan C, Amy Merrill. Amy Merrill is an artist and an activist, co-founder and digital director of Abortion Pill Info campaign Plan C. That's plancpills.org. And she also co-leads web and communication studio Eyes Open. That's eyesopendesign.com. And I'm going to make sure to put that in the show notes so that you can click on those and access the amazingness that unfolds before you there. (laughs) So I want to thank you for coming on this show. You have been in my field 
with everything going on politically and you've been in my friend group. And this is just, mm-hmm. I, I always think it's so beautiful and synchronistic when I get to cross paths in this podcast way with amazing voices like yourself. And I wanted you to come on specifically to help us become more clear about what's going on, what we can do for ourselves, what's revealing itself in the culture. So thank you. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. There is so much that we can talk about today. Yes. And I want to say, you know, I mentioned the word culture and and the things that are kind of percolating out there. And Um, Oftentimes in this podcast, I like to talk about the cultural narratives, you know, these cultural images of what we uh, what we're given and how it influences the way that we see and perceive and how we believe that we're supposed to operate in the world. And this is one of those topics where I feel like we're so inundated with these with these uh, narratives and especially in like uh, American media, TV, politics and how much weight that they carry on shaping our perceptions around the procedure, um, around abortion. And so I want to start there with you of like, when you see storylines and you see what's being talked about in, in or what's viewed in TVs and, and um, what do you see as the common archetype or the character that um, of who's, who's seeking abortions or how abortions are portrayed there? Well, I want to start by honing in on a word that you use that has to do with this cultural framing, which is that abortion is a procedure, right? Mm. That that what we've known to be abortion so far, and we can we can that will lead to who gets an abortion. But what we've known of abortion is that it's a procedure, that it's medicalized, that it takes place in a clinic, that you go there and you go through intake and you. Um, you know, the, the, it's, the term is surgical abortion. Others will call it aspiration abortion. It's something that is done to you. All of these things come out of the, the way that abortion has been provided in decades past. And uh, they have circulated through our culture um, to reinforce ideas of who, who gets to access an abortion, how do you get one or who gives you one, like all those kinds of transactional pieces have been a part of the language and the culture around abortion. And I will say, it feels so relevant for the conversation with you. There has been so much shame and stigma around abortion itself that, you know, who, who gets abortions? It's people that, you know, had sex irresponsibly mm-hmm. or, you know, are a certain, are a certain class or a certain race. There's, there's demographics that we can get into of who is seeking abortion, but the layer until very recently when it all started to open up with these policy changes and with the increasing of unjust laws, there was this layer of stigma and shame and kind of misunderstanding around abortion where what's really helpful is to zoom out and see that abortion or ending pregnancies or different pregnancy outcomes have been a reality since the beginning of the human experience, right? Like pregnancy is this, is this, um, uh, spectrum. There are so many things that might transpire over the course of a pregnancy. Uh, one in four ends in miscarriage. There are so many ways that a pregnancy might go. And then you come to the question of, control of who gets abortions or or whether or not someone has the ability, the option to control whether they want to bring a pregnancy to term. And that's where the technology piece comes in. That's where um, 
we've had the option of aspiration or surgical abortion for many decades. And for the last two decades, the abortion pills have come on the scene. And I find the story of the pills so interesting, too, from a cultural perspective, because... The Plan C pill? Yeah, the Plan C pill. So when it was first introduced, um, it's a a combination of medications, which we can talk about the actual mechanism of action there. But the way that um, MIFI, Mifepristone, the first came on the scene, was as RU486 in France in the 80s. And it was introduced as the French abortion pill. And it was deemed by the Minister of Health as the moral property of women in France. So positioned in a way that would be right in the woman's hand, right, right in the control of the woman. And then when it was introduced in the U.S., it was immediately clamped down with FDA restrictions and only allowed in certain circumstances, in clinics and in providers' offices, not allowed in pharmacies. So it was introduced in this very different way that made it seem unsafe or like it needed to be medicalized. And that was the trajectory of it from there on out. Um, misoprostol, the other medication that makes up the abortion pill regimen, was actually discovered by women in Brazil to have a side effect of ending pregnancy. It's an ulcer medication. It was mm. discovered by the indicators on the label, oh, it, it might end a pregnancy. And so women in Brazil passed this information by word of mouth to spread it as a method um, in a country that had big restrictions on abortions. So I share all that to kind of paint the landscape and then yeah. where we're getting to today is a sort of um, reclaiming of the method in this moment where unjust laws are blanketing half the country, banning, restricting abortion access. We're watching the method be reclaimed into people's hands, truly understanding the transformative nature of abortion pills as as an essential part of the, the healthcare needs of this country. Yeah, that's a love. I knew that I would just like put the question out there and you would like run with it. <laughs> but it, <laughs> there's such a beautiful, you know, deconstructing this concept of the word abortion. And you're saying, let's zoom out and see this as a whole process of the natural or, you know, the, about the, the human pregnancy, you know, the process of pregnancy, let's make it, let's not just focus on that, but let's zoom it all out. And then here we're seeing the cultural uh, narratives of not just America, but of other countries, even how other countries supported the um, the agency, the empowerment of people in their pregnancy process, France, Brazil. Yeah. What uh, that makes me think about how they they are viewing right now what's happening in America. (laughs) Right. I gosh, that's uh, good. Yeah, there's there's a lot of attention right now on what's happening in America. There's a lot of uh, what I hear from you know the international scene is just a lot of watching very carefully because American culture is influential. It does end up affecting decisions that are made in other countries, but also there, I, I hear this sentiment of what are they thinking, right? What is this country thinking? We're going what people are calling backward in time and in human rights and restricting something that in other countries has become so mainstream, so normal, so available. Mm -hmm. And why do you think that is that these other countries has become a lot more normalized and we're still having a really hard time with, with that integration? It's so political. It really is. Um, it, abortion, you can, you can find 
some good podcasts and literature about this, but um, abortion was really claimed by the conservative party a couple decades ago, recognizing that there were voters that would be able to be um, adopted by certain candidates or kind of, you know, corralled into certain parties by taking a stance on abortion that was kind of, I'll say repositioned as um, moral or religious. And Mm -hmm. this whole narrative was created to influence politics and to play with control and power. And um, that has gone really deep. So from what I see, the reason why the U.S.'s relationship with abortion is so different is truly along political lines. And then that, of course, has layers to it that are cultural, that are religious, that are demographic and geographic of where people are living in the kinds of pockets. But I, you know, I really see abortion as one dimension of so many larger narratives, so many larger things that are unfolding in this country around race and class. And um, it's, it's not isolated. It has to do with the very same questions that we're asking around our systems of oppression around the racism in this country that exists around the classism and really I, I see it as cracking open in a similar way that the racial justice movement did a few years ago that we're finally looking at something that's been a part a, a, a developing or established part of our system for a very long time mm-hmm. yeah yeah and, and coming back to what you know where we started the podcast too of these this idea of these narratives that are fed to us in in movies or stories or um, um, you know our surrounding culture. I remember growing up. For me, I'm from rural town, Missouri. Um, it, Catholic family, um, Catholic school, very. Uh, uh, I, w- I would say my family was probably the only uh, liberal family for miles. So I did grow up with parents who supported the rights of reproduction, but then going into school and getting all these messages around how this is, how this is a sin, how that you're going to hell, how this is bad. And as a child feeling very, uh, confused by that. And then seeing how that's perpetuated in TV shows where, um, women, going to get abortion are fraught between this, this moral, uh, yeah, this moral shame or this, um, this is a traumatic event for them. So I remember growing up with that. And then when I first started being a therapist, I think I was 23 and had a client who had had an abortion. And I asked her, um, I, I felt the feeling of, of, um, trauma and sadness in my body. And I asked her, Oh, that must've been painful. And she looked at me and she goes, no. And I realized in that moment, my own perception, I had to sit and do my own therapy around that. Like, where did this come from that I projected that onto her, that it was something that was traumatic. So can you speak to, can you speak to that? Or can you speak to how we would get to that get to that point or see those perspectives? Yeah, absolutely. I think that your experience is really common. I think that the the country, for so many reasons that we could talk about for a whole episode about kind of the puritanical roots of this country and our hesitance and or our, our fraught relationship in general with sexuality 
And um, the fact that we are obsessed with sex, with advertising and certain aspects of pop culture, but then we also can't talk about sex and we yeah. kind of <laughs> squash conversations around sex and we, and we make it bad or we, you know, um, uh, the, the religious narrative or what's become political narrative is that every, you know, every time you engage in sex, it must result in procreation because uh-huh. that's, you know, the will. And so I just think that um, your experience is, is really common and that so many, especially people with uteruses, women in this country, uh, have to have that moment where it shifts for them, where they recognize all of the ways that they were trained, raised, programmed growing up are worthy of a bit of questioning of do I still agree with these old feelings, these old sensibilities that um, having an abortion is shameful, that I did something wrong, right? Like the narrative in the movement right now is really to proclaim abortion as normal. And there's even a movement to um, mm-hmm. pluralize abortion so that we're not just talking about everyone deserves to have one abortion, but that if you happen to have multiple abortions, that's normal too. Um, it's really moving away from even previous language around like um, that abortion should be rare. That's no longer... Um, we're, we're moving past that into, again, understanding abortion as one aspect of this spectrum of your reproductive life cycle, of your reproductive journey in life. If you are in a body with a uterus, these things may arise and be, uh, um, you know, that your, your life will present different experiences. You will have encounters, you will have relationships, you will choose to have children or not have children. And at any given point, you may have a choice to make or a set of options to navigate. And abortion needs to be incorporated, integrated into that journey uh, so that it's not isolated over here, having mm-hmm. to be sought out through a, you know, a network of independent clinics, through bold providers that are stepping up to provide care, like the call right now is to truly integrate abortion as a human right, as basic health care, as something that at any point someone might want, need, seek. And with that, I think, comes the breakdown of old stigma and yeah. old siloing, right? That um, that y- you allow space for, like you described with the patient, that um, the experience to be exactly what it was. For some people, it might have been a challenge or sad or scary. For some people, it might have been no big deal. In fact, they might have just thought about it as getting their period back. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe they didn't even think of it as an abortion. That's another conversation Mm -hmm. that's happening right now is um, maybe it's just about taking these pills when your period is late. And there's actually a rise in interest and and a provision right now of, of pills in advance from telehealth providers that are offering that up to patients in the U.S. because of the fraught situation. They're saying, you know, this is a really common practice in medicine to just give a medication in case you might need it. Mm-hmm. So we're going to offer pills in advance so that they're in your medicine cabinet. And that yeah. decision is even more available to you. Um, so, yeah, I, I really appreciate um, sharing that space with you of trauma-informed therapy and of, of thinking about what might, um, what might be a part of someone's experience that they, 
that they need to process later and how might things be shifting and evolving as we open up the cultural conversation around what is an abortion, who gets to have an abortion, um, can we normalize it? Can we help people heal? Can we help mm-hmm. people have all these options available to them um, so that it's just a part of their journey? Mm-hmm. And we're seeing that more too. We're seeing more people sharing their stories very openly and very, very vulnerably. I will highlight that. Yes. It's vulnerable to say this, knowing that the culture outside won't necessarily receive you in, in a positive light. But I do think that that's helpful in in re-narrating this for us. You know, it's giving us new uh, reference points to understand what the variety of of experiences that are out there. Definitely. And that's where we see a a substantial opportunity right now to introduce more and more stories around the abortion pill experience and the Mm -hmm. self-managed abortion experience, because it's something that is still relatively unknown or unfamiliar in the U.S., Um, uh, many, many, tens of thousands of people self-manage every year, if not hundreds of thousands. It's hard to have that data because of the nature of it being a self-managed uh, choice and, and activity. But um, we believe it's really more important than ever as these states pass unjust bans that people understand that might be an option for them. And that if there's more stories out in the ether about what is that experience? What what do you ex- what can you expect um, what does it mean to self-manage at home? How long is it going to last? Is it painful? All of these kind of basic questions are being answered more and more often, both by public health and medical resources, as well as by movies and TV shows. And I personally think all of it is important. It's important for these stories to be out there so that we understand what it is we're talking about and that it um, it just becomes known as well as available. And so that's our our part of our campaign for the last six years has been recognizing, again, the transformative potential of abortion pills in an individual's hands and then recognizing what needs to shift, what needs to open up in order for it to be more part of the mainstream. Who mm-hmm. who can we invite to consider this option as they tell stories or consider this option as they share out information, how can we sort of help it exist in the mainstream um, so that people know it exists, whether or not they need it, it's, it's out there and it's um, it's got so much more uh, power in giving someone the the ability to self-determine their pregnancy outcomes, giving someone the ability to really have autonomy over their body it's yeah. no longer within medical systems. It's no longer um, wrapped up in politics. It's really, again, kind of moving the locus of control back to the hands of the individual and uh, making sure that they have safe, supported resources to know whether this is the thing for them, whether that's a medical hotline like the MA hotline or the Repro Legal Helpline that's helping someone understand their legal risk in any mm-hmm. given situation. And so, yeah, part of the the new stories that we would love to see and we would love to hear told have to do with incorporating the self-managed options so that it's really familiar to folks because oh, it is I all around that. the world. Sorry. It is. Yeah, all, yeah it is all it's around so the world. And, and I love that you use the word folks because I really want to highlight, and this is probably, and this is something, you know, I've seen in your, in the work that you've done too, the inclusion of 
of gender and identity. And, and, you know, this isn't just women and girls, this is trans folks, this is non-binary, this is, but we're so accustomed to this image of, you know, reproduction, vulva and, you know, woman, <laughs> but it's leaving out a whole, whole group of, of other folks that this includes. That's right. And when we think about who's facing barriers to care, if we really truly center the folks who are higher risk, uh, marginalized communities, black, brown, indigenous, LGBTQIA, youth, undocumented, we, we, we absolutely must expand those identity understand we must expand the understanding of who needs an abortion and mm -hmm. how access to abortion affects communities, affects our society and be inclusive of that in our resources and, and, um, and inclusive of their experience as we try to answer the question of um, how can we improve access? Like what is, what does access mean? And um, right now, you know, um, someone might want or seek in-person care. They might need it because of the, their, their own health. And finding in-person care in one of these restricted states is extremely challenging. There's amazing groups on the ground who are helping people navigate logistics. Abortion funds are continuing to support people as they seek out what they need. Um, people are starting to book travel and go to other states. And um, we're hoping that information about abortion pills that are available online can spread as well so that um, people know if that's an option for them. It really does serve the equity piece that you're referencing mm -hmm. with understanding the intersectional identities who might need an abortion and then what are the resources available to them and how can we continue to highlight uh, resources that could be in service to their needs. And when we talk about criminalization in this country, it's also important to mention who gets criminalized. And it's the same folks that get criminalized for all sorts of reasons in this country having to do with their identity. It's criminalization of black and brown folks, of indigenous, BIPOC, low income, LGBTQIA, undocumented folks. And so that's why in our information, as we reference the legal risk and the risk of criminalization, we try to center those folks uh, in all of our materials to ensure that they are um, the ones who are most protected and acknowledged as we move forward in this post-row landscape. Absolutely, because they're already dealing with, with layers of um, being in a heightened state of nervous system activation of, you know, hypervigilance watching out for themselves because of these, uh, the, the systemic racism and, and, um, gender, <laughs> gender stigmas out there. So sometimes, it, you know, in a heteronormative society, we can forget about that. And it's important to, yeah, speak to that. So it's included the uniqueness of their, of their extra, uh, extra challenges. Yeah. That's right. And, and I just think it's, uh, again, if we zoom out and look at what's happening in this country and this barrage of unjust bans against abortion, of laws that criminalize abortion. It's it's about abortion, but it's also about something larger, right? Mm -hmm. It's about yeah. these systemic, these systems of oppression doing what they do and these 
instances of white supremacy playing out in all sorts of different ways. It has to do with power and control. And so we need to hold both at the same time. We need to hold focus on abortion access and centering those folks in pushing for access and pushing for rights. And then we also need to keep zooming out and acknowledging the larger system at play. Mm-hmm. I mentioned to you before the podcast that um, <laughs> my little inner organizational, we'll call her a fairy, <laughs> was mm-hmm. so excited with how organized everything was and how clear everything was. So anybody who's in this situation, you know, may or may not, you know, I'm thinking through the trauma lens, we're not as um, nervous system regulated, we're not as present. So having these steps laid out exactly for us, who to talk to, who to even get legal advice from, it's all there. Thank you. That is absolutely our intention. And that's uh, why our number one call to action is to just share the Plan C website as a starting point. And then you can share the other set of resources that we already mentioned, the M&A hotline, the Reaper Legal Helpline, the Digital Defense Fund that's helping people understand their online security. But if we can at least get the Plan C website on people's radars, then that site contains so much of these dimensions of what someone might need to know. And we've done a lot of user testing. We've done a lot of rounds of feedback and input from all of our partner organizations and potential users so that we really understand um, what kind of information can be in service to their journey. So thank yeah, you for that. Absolutely. And especially in this this um, uh, this climate, this political climate, it, everything is yeah. so confusing. That's I was right. confused and I have some coaching clients in other states and they were confused and feeling, you know, they were dysregulated from not knowing whether, you know, whether contraception was okay. Or could they go like what, what was okay? What wasn't okay? And I... When, when the ruling came out, I did take a pause. I took a beat and I just stepped back and I, and I just observed what was going on rather than adding to the noise because I didn't know. And I think that that's really important for everybody to give yourself that permission to not feel like you, you have to add to the conversation until you understand. So taking a moment and quiet uh, observation is just as helpful to everyone as, as it is to, to share. So we're, you know, we're in this conversation. Um, what is it a month after maybe three weeks? I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's full time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And so what have we learned in this month and what clarity can we have, um, around what, what's happening? I so appreciate that reminder. I think you're absolutely right. It's somehow we have to hold the contradiction of moving quickly to respond to the moment and get the information out there and fighting the urgency. We're not we're not going to solve this overnight. Um, there's so much information flying around already. Like you said, there's, there's uh, a lot of confusion because of that. And so it is a balance between... Uh, ensuring that we're not, we won't, we won't stand silent. Like we are going to rise up and respond to this moment. This is a total injustice. It's a total violation of our human rights. And we're going to respond in kind. We're going to push back and ensure that we fight for people's rights and access. And at the same time, we're going to take a breath. We're going to take a beat. We're going to do it with a bit of 
you know, a, a pause, say, mm-hmm. we're going to take a pause so that when we do respond, it's coming from the most aligned place. And we have a moment to sift through all of these resources to understand what needs sharing and what just adds to the noise. Yeah. Um, and I think that this this month has been so uh, I, I, from my perspective, where I sit at Plan C, I, I have seen the evolution already of the conversation, you know, the, the, um, the reaction, the first reaction kind of, mm-hmm. f- uh, it was a flurry and then it started to die down. And now I see people sort of shifting into, uh, a more strategic, a more, kind of thoughtful and aligned approach of, mm-hmm. okay, what's, what's the next vision, right? What is the vision? And this is a practice that at Plants Day we've been in for years and years because our whole name of the game is, is uh, sketching out a vision of a future where the pills are in people's hands and where they have all the resources they need to be able to have this as an option. Um, and, uh, and so right now, you know, from where I sit, it's about, that part of the vision is still very clear. It's about ensuring pills and hands, and it's about sharing out resources like the guide and like aid access, which serves people in restricted states from overseas. It's a provider-based human rights organization that serves people um, and gets the pills mailed from overseas. There's online pharmacies. There's mail forwarding that people are using to get access to telehealth in restricted states. There's, like we said, advanced provision of pills. And then there's going to be a need for continued support of the funds and the clinics on the ground. Again, support of the reproductive justice leaders who have been leading this movement for a long time and are going to be continuing to lead the movement, show up in their communities and support people in need. Mm -hmm. And support for these logistics systems for people that do need in-person care or need travel. Those systems are going to continue to need our support and also our, our comradeship, our, our um, collaboration as we look to the future. Mm-hmm. And then I see this um, alignment around recognition of the unjust laws, right? Not just taking these laws at face value, but really asking who are these laws for and what are they based on? And they're certainly not medical or scientific. So we see them as an extension of, again, systemic oppression, of racism, of classism, of misogyny. And so we're not going to just stand there and watch these laws pass. We're going to really push back and, uh, you know, question them, poke at them, push for policy changes, vote, um, really hold a vision of what what kind of country we want to live in and then what kinds of efforts need to be made. Yeah, And fi- finally, just we're, we we are going to keep showing up and it's such a longer arc of justice here that we're on. <laughs> we're, I'm yeah. not going to say we're stepping into it, it's that we've already been on. It's a long arc of our arc that we're that we're riding and that we're, again, unpacking all of these dimensions of, of issues in our country so that we can really look at them and um, show up for the people who are the most at risk and up against the most barriers to just being well and thriving in this country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to emphasize that this is a longer process and that we take care of ourselves along this process so we don't burn out. And so these, these um, uh, organizations don't burn out because they're pumping out so much, <laughs> so much help, but right. you're painting this beautiful uh, community uh, community support, like put it in, in the hands of the people as community. We talk about that in, in, um, in therapy, you know, the community mm-hmm. model 
Uh, yes, yeah. we can address the individuals, but as we develop a community, a peer support, it changes the the whole um, macro uh, macro culture. You know, it it changes that ability, yep. it, it, all the other stressors, because we're just supporting yep. each other. It's normalizing that support. That's right, and I think that's a major. I think that's a major deal. I think, um, yeah. again, abortion has been so stigmatized and pushed into the dark corners and this thing that we don't really want to talk about and we, you know, nonprofits have to pop up to provide it and all of these things. And finally, I see it bringing, being brought into the light and being addressed as community care. It will still be an individual decision and ideally the person will have the ability to determine what's best for them. But it's 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 being recontextualized into the communities and the society at large in a way that that I feel is really important. Yeah, yeah, that's so great. And with that too, there's also a shadow side of all of this too, putting it in the hands of people because we're hearing a lot of scams that are coming out. Can you shed some light on on what that is? Because it was confusing to me too. It's truthfully when I first yeah. heard about it, I was like. Who would create scams like, around vulnerable populations like this? Yeah, one of one of the uh, problematic areas right now are what are called crisis pregnancy centers or fake clinics, and these are organizations that promote themselves as. Um, a resource for a person who's pregnant to make a decision to get testing, be supported. And they often position themselves as uh, a resource, a, a solution for someone in need of an abortion. But then when the person goes in the doors, they actually don't offer abortion. They are religiously or politically motivated, and they're actually going to end up talking someone out of the abortion or delaying them for enough time that they miss the window for an in-person abortion, mm -hmm. things like that. So, um, it's, it is a problem. We are taking a lot of actions with our SEO and online presence um, in order to push back and ensure that evidence-based, fact-based information is rising above these fake clinics online. That's part of the confusion that I think you're referencing is if you search abortion near me right now, you get all sorts of mishmash of search results. Um, Planned Parenthood is still right up there at the top, which is good. Even in the states that they're not able to operate clinics, they're still hosting a whole set of uh, vetted and medically backed information, including they're now linking off to the Plan C website, which is a really big deal for us. We mm -hmm. we feel really um, uh, happy that that we are at this stage where we can align with them and say we all want the same things, even if Planned Parenthood runs clinics and Plan C is telling people how to access pills. And here in this moment in history, um, Planned Parenthood is going to send them off to Plan C if they can't be able to directly serve them. Um, so that's one area of misinformation that is really important for us to be um, combating, or I don't want to use combat language, but like be, be proactive about, right? And um, there's also, if someone wants to get involved in that, there is a an advocacy group that's called exposedfakeclinics.com is the website. Mm -hmm. It's run by AAF, which is a really great um, activism organization. They're mobilizing volunteers to be reporting these fake clinics online to be balancing out. And I know that Gen Z, Gen Z um, oh gosh, I'm blanking on their name. Um, there's a, a group of TikTokers who are also creating technology to push back and- Bless uh, the TikTokers. <laughs> I, 
they're doing all kinds of advocacy on the ground. It's amazing. I think it's Gen Z for change and they're just rocking it with initiatives like that. Um, so yeah, it's, it, it really is about, um, about help. It's, it's so related in my mind to conversations that this country has had about media literacy and making sure as you consume the news that you are able to be discerning about what is quote unquote real news versus fake news or what's propaganda, you know, and it's, it's similar. It's like helping people, even those who have lower uh, levels of education or live in rural communities, helping to get information out there that has to do with media literacy and being discerning about what they're finding. And then it's also about ensuring that we're being proactive about systems of search and systems that are delivering information in the internet at all and being sure that we're proactively kind of encouraging the evidence-based information to rise to the top. Yes, yes. And is there concern about these cycle tracking uh, apps? Because I keep reading articles about that and I want a little more clarity around that. Mm-hmm. I have heard concern as well. I've, I've spent some time looking into that as well. And the concern is basically that I want to be clear. It's, it's not that the cycle apps are suddenly delivering their data to the state agencies. They're going to be analyzing it for pregnancy. That is a whole other world that we're not talking about at this point. Um, it is the concern is that the data is being aggregated. And then if someone was criminalized for an abortion in a specific state, that that data might be used to build a case against them. So that I want to kind of like, that's, that's what uh, we have been in the practice of doing at plan C is not just responding with fear to the law, but really asking what is this law saying or suggesting and if it's suggesting that someone might be criminalized for having chosen an abortion in a state and access to an abortion in a certain state then potentially a case would be built against them using data from these big tech companies um, and so that's where the concern around tracking is coming up i do know that there's an app called yuki that was built by a nonprofit that promises they will never sell their data and that they're taking all of the precautions possible to protect people's personal data and then the other conversation I've heard is if you have any concerns, just get off the app for a while and do a paper calendar. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, not ideal because, again, we want everyone to have the tools that they want and that they're comfortable with. And there's there's so many things that are good about period trackers that do mm-hmm. keep you familiar with when your period should come and whether it's late. Um, but it's like so many things. It's just going to be a balance of taking measures that feel appropriate for your needs for your potential level of risk and being sure that you're being proactive about protecting yourself online versus not shutting down um, your options or Mm -hmm. denying yourself that kind of tool or that kind of care out of out of fear because again these laws are just incredibly unjust and people are actively working to the the lawyers have been activated the lawyers are (laughs) stepping up to to take action in this moment so it's all Uh again changing really quickly in real time yeah and to to let everybody know that on your website they can access support legal support so if there are questions and concerns about their own personal experience they can they can go to plancpills.org 
That's right. And we recommend this hotline called the uh, Repro Legal Helpline, which is run by a group called If One How, Lawyering for Reproductive Justice. They exist solely to protect people's rights. And the hotline exists to answer anyone's question about their particular situation. Amazing. Oh, I love that. Okay. The last few questions I have are more in regards to safety and um, around the Plan C pill itself. And so the first thing that I thought about was, uh, so for me, I have a um, Paragard, the IUD. And so would that factor into self-managed care around abortion? Yeah. So the recommendation is to take out the IUD before taking the pills. And the best possible resource for a question like that is the MA hotline. mahotline.org is staffed by wonderful medical providers who are the deepest experts on self-managed abortion in this wow. country right now. Mm-hmm. So if you had a question like that, you could just call up MA and say, hey, I'm thinking of taking the pills or I plan to take the pills this Friday. I have an IUD. What do I do? And they Great. will walk you through. Yeah. Great. I think that's really important because for you know much of the population who do have IUDs, there are so many different um, different Mm, toys, tools, practices that, you know, they don't include the question around IUD. And so how are we putting ourselves in danger? Um, (laughs) I think needs to be a part of the the conversation. You know, the normative images of somebody who doesn't have an IUD, but there's many who do. So (laughs) I do too. Yeah. 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 (laughs) And is there a specific age that you need to be in order to do self-managed abortions or? Nope, there is no age limit in regards to the medication. Um, Sometimes people have questions about age limits in the state that they're in and accessing abortion from a provider in their state. And that is a state-by-state thing. However, the the human rights services like aid access do not have an age limit. Um, They're very intentional about saying that, you know, anyone who's old enough to get pregnant is old enough to be able to make a decision not to carry the pregnancy to term. Um, And so that's uh, one aspect, again, that's being sort of discussed more openly now and and examined more openly now, which is good. And, um, And there also is often a question about weight limit with the pills because Plan B does have some guidelines around weight limits and plan C or the abortion pills do not have weight limits either. Mm. Okay. That's good mm-hmm. to know. Mm-hmm. And I've also seen movements to make this as an over the counter pill. And yes. is this, um, are there, it, uh, maybe you can speak to the safety or the safety profile of this, of this pill for, um, for users. Yeah, we are one of those groups that, wants the pill to be over the counter. We were founded, my co-founders are public health researchers and they started out by doing international work and seeing how common this was all around the world and how available it was. And then they came back to the US and uh, again, saw the restrictions that were based more on politics than than medicine or science. So we do see a future where this pill would be over the counter and um, it's gonna be a long road to get there because (laughs) mainly because of the politics in this country and, and then secondarily, the pharmaceutical processes in this country, the FDA processes. So um, 
yes, the the safety and efficacy is strong enough that the pill is recommended by public health and medical experts as uh, should be over the counter. And the safety comparison is that it's statistically safer than Tylenol. If mm. someone needs a sort of like grounding and the way to think about how safe is safe, yeah. so safer than considered safer than Tylenol, considered safer than Viagra. Wow. I always appreciate comparisons to Viagra because here you have a drug <laughs> that's enhancing sexual performance. And then you compare that side by side by the abortion pills that would help someone manage the outcomes of sex. And it's totally restricted. It's totally in a different wow. realm. Um, and then effectiveness, it's a, it's considered 98% effective, the regimen of MIPI plus MISO. Yeah. Um, and there's also been a conversation uh, about MISO only. MISO only is a regimen that's slightly less effective and requires a, a little bit different um, dosage and usage of the pills, but MISO is much more available in this country. So mm -hmm. right now, Researchers and medical providers are asking questions around, um, you know, should we be talking more about the MISA only regimen if that's the only thing that someone has available so that they know that that could be an option for them. Mm -hmm. um, and, the, and the only reason why it's debated or what, what needs to be worked out is that with the slightly lower effectiveness, there is a slightly higher chance that someone might need follow-up care or, um, you know, need to take themselves somewhere where then they might be in a precarious situation because of the state they live in or the politics of their area where they have a little bit more risk of being reported or, you know, where criminalization might occur. Mm -hmm. So sure. anyway, yeah, that's yeah. that's another dimension to um, the conversation around these various options. Yeah. Yeah. And the process itself, is it a is it a difficult process to to take the pills and and I don't know what the process is of it itself. Yeah, the process is uh, very straightforward. Um, so straightforward that a lot of people have acknowledged even what's called a medication abortion in a clinic has been largely self managed for the last decade plus because the process is really to take the first pill, Miffy, and then go home. And 24 to 48 hours later, you let the second round of meds, the misoprostol, dissolve in your mouth and then spit it out. And so the process is pretty straightforward. And there is so much information online to guide that right. part of the experience or the MA hotline can guide someone. Um, and then the actual process in the body in the days following that really varies from person to person. So it's hard to say this is what to expect. But it basically varies from being a heavy period to up to two weeks of bleeding and cramping and spotting. Mm -hmm. And so there's a there's a window there of what someone can expect. And there's also some guidelines for someone to know it, when should I be concerned? What are the what are the factors to look out for when I should call back the MA hotline? or take myself to the local ER. Mm -hmm. So there's a there's so much information online. And mm -hmm. I so appreciate your questions because part of the name in the game right now really is, again, familiarizing people with this option, with this method, mm -hmm. so that it's not scary or yeah. unknown or yeah. mysterious. It's really just, oh, here's what it is. Here's what it does in the body. Here's what to expect. And then someone can decide, is this the experience that I seek, that I need? you know, that is right for me at this moment in this 
home or in this relationship or whatever it is and have the information is power right now, right? Mm -hmm. It's all Mm -hmm. about having the information. And you've given us a lot, Amy. (laughs) Thank you for this, for this, you know, really clarifying conversation. You just give so much. And, And again, I really encourage everybody to check out that website. Even if you're not in that space right now, this can be really helpful for you in the future or to people that are in your surrounding community who are needing that and and in the space of of not knowing, which can, can be scary. You know, this having the support, the the um, the structure that you provide is really really um, relieving. Mm, thank you. And where can they find out more from you? Um, I mentioned PlanCPills.org. Yep. And at Plan C Pills is our social media handle. And um, we can also share in the show notes a list of other resources that we've talked about today so that people understand whether it's familiarizing yourself with the options that are available in what we call a post-row landscape or whether it's you want to get more involved as an activist. There are Mm. some really incredible organizations right now that are getting people up to speed on the movement and the actions that are available for folks to take. And so we can share all those in the notes. Well, that was fun. Thanks for tuning in, lovers. And if you want to experience more ecstasy and sexual liberation, head over to sexlovepsychedelics.com and learn about how you can join me for any one of my online or live events. And while you're there, grab my free guide on sex and psychedelics. Remember, this podcast is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Please contact your healthcare provider and local law before pursuing any of the products or psychedelics discussed. And one final note here, I make this show specifically for you. If you're loving the show, then be sure to leave me a review in iTunes or Spotify to let me know. Happy to be here and happy to serve. I'll see you next time on Sex Love Psychedelics.